2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin to read at verse, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for for, for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in the sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Uh, Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches, who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of these things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damazines guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through their hands. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I 
am strong. Amen. And we know God always blesses the reading of his own inspired word. I love the little peanuts cartoons, and uh, I love the little one where Linus is eating a peanut and butter, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Sandwich, we would say jam. Peanut butter and jam sandwich. And he, he notices his hands. And with an air of profundity, he says, uh, Hands are fascinating things. I like my hands. My hands have a lot of character. These hands will one day do marvelous works. They will build bridges. They will heal the sick. They'll score home runs. They'll write soul-stirring novels. And then he reaches a crescendo and he says, these are the hands that will someday change the world and change the course of history. And Lucy looks at him rather matter-of-factly and says, hands covered in peanut butter and jelly. And that was the lesson I needed to learn a number of years ago, that God uses hands covered in peanut butter and jelly. I went through a bit of a crisis in my ministry where I lost confidence in uh, preaching. Not in preaching per se, but in my own preaching. I felt I wasn't very good at it. And uh, after that, this week, you might be tempted to, <laughs> to agree with that statement. Um, but there are some men you see, and they love preaching. They love being in the pulpit and uh, love declaring the word of God. That's not me. That's not something temperamentally that naturally comes to me. I, I uh, do it because I believe God has called me to it, but it's not something I'm naturally inclined to. Um, and after a period of stress and difficulty in the ministry, it was this rediscovery that God uses hands covered in peanut butter and jelly that restored my confidence in preaching. Now, you'll be glad to know it wasn't from a Peanuts comic book that I rediscovered that truth, but from 2 Corinthians and the passage that I've read to you in particular. Now, you'll have to be patient and bear with me because the punchline, just like the cartoon, comes right at the end. But I do think it's worth waiting for, so just... Be patient, the application will come. Humility, says Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, is the chief of all Christian graces. It is the hallmark of the true child of God. And humility, of course, is the opposite to pride and the fruit of pride, which is boasting. In fact, the dictionary defines boasting as being excessively proud. Boasting is the very antithesis of humility. And remember, remembering what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, then boasting is incompatible with a true profession of faith. But in this passage, that's exactly what we find Paul doing, boasting. He uses the word some 16 times. In verse 16, he speaks of engaging in a little boasting. In verse 18, he says, I too will boast. In verse 21, he says, I also dare to boast. And right into chapter 12, we find him boasting again and again. And it's surprising and startling to some Christians that we find the great Apostle Paul doing this very thing. It seems incongruous that Paul would resort to such an unspiritual and unbiblical activity. And of course it is, unless we understand what Paul is doing in the passage. So with that in mind, um, I want you to notice 
six things this morning. We were told in homiletics at college, if you have more than three points, don't tell them. But I'm telling you up front, we have six points, okay? The first I want you to notice is the reluctance in his boasting. As we come to the passage described by John MacArthur as the most emotionally charged words that Paul ever penned, we need to understand that boasting is something that didn't come naturally to him. These are uncomfortable words for him to pen. He didn't find it easy to talk about himself. He reluctantly engages in these things and speaks and boasts about his own experience. He says three things about boasting. First of all, he says, it's foolish in verse 16. Let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, receive me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. Paul in order to make a point, adopts the posture of a fool. The word fool there means to be without reason, to be without common sense, to be uh, without spiritual understanding. And boasting is the product of a foolish mind. Boasting is foolish, he says. Secondly, boasting is unspiritual. Look at verse 17. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would talk, but as a fool. Paul says that engaging in this boasting, I'm not doing what Jesus would have done. Although no one ever, uh, ever made higher claims uh, for himself than Jesus, he uttered those claims in the context of uh, his being self-emptied and bent on the business of the redemption of the world. His life on earth was characterized by self-denial and great humility. Now, since Jesus was and is the embodiment of all that it means to be holy, and since he is the model that we must emulate and the pattern that we must follow, then to boast is a very unlike Jesus thing to do. It's an unspiritual thing to do. So he says this boasting is foolish, it's unspiritual, and it's worldly. Look at verse 18. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. Boasting is the fruit of worldliness. It's what the world does. It's what the world did then. It's what the world does now. In, the, in antiquity, uh, uh, boasting was a great thing. Ancient monuments and public buildings were peppered with inscriptions listing the accomplishments of those they honored. Even in private homes, walls were uh, decorated by frescoes and murals that listed the successes of the family head. And of course, today is no different. Much of our entertainment is based not on the talent of the individual, but on the parading of their egos. And they will uh, sink to any depths to, uh, in order that they might promote themselves. In the business and academic world, Candidates are expected to sell themselves with professionally produced CVs that maximize the most trivial of accomplishments. That's the way of the world, says Paul. Boasting is worldly. So boasting, says Paul, is foolish, it's unspiritual, and worldly. And yet, that's what Paul does in this passage. But we need to understand that he's doing it reluctantly. The reluctance in his boasting. Second thing I want you to notice is the necessity of his boasting. If Paul viewed boasting as foolish, unspiritual, and worldly, why do we find him doing that in this passage? And the simple answer to that, the short answer is needs must. 
The church at Corinth was at a crossroads. It was in danger of ceasing to be a true church and of squandering the true gospel. And so Paul employs what Margaret Thatcher would have called a short, sharp shock to wake them up to the danger they were in. And so he adopts the tactics of his enemies and boasts just as they would have boasted in order to gain the church's attention. Look at what he says there in verse 18. Since many are boasting in this way, in the way the world does, I too will boast. Now the many there in verse 18 are a group of Johnny-come-latelys who had infiltrated the church at Corinth and were selling themselves as super-apostles. And they boasted of their superior gifts, their superior knowledge, their superior experiences, indeed their superior looks. And Paul, well, Paul, they said, he had no personality, he had no authority, he had no dignity, he had no ability. He was just a little old bandy-legged, hook-nosed apostle who couldn't string two words together. And it seems the church was torn in their loyalty and love and were in danger of being won over by these, these people who had so much more, it seemed, to offer. Paul says rather sarcastically there in verse 19, you gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. It was a serious issue. These imposters were fools. Fools not only in terms of common sense, but fools in the sense of Psalm 19, where the fool says in his heart there is no God. They were devoid of spiritual truth and spiritual understanding. In verse 20, Paul gives a scathing description of these uh, apostles. Just look at, at verse 20. He says, um, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. He uses five words to describe these, these people. He says they enslaved, they brought the Corinthians into bondage. They exploited them. Literally, they devoured them. Literally, they ate them out of house and home. They took advantage of them. The word means to be caught in a trap. They ensnared them. They pushed themselves forward. The ESV translates that. They put on airs and graces. And fifthly, they struck the Corinthians in the face, face which metaphorically uh, indicates that they repeatedly insulted them. Now, if we were looking for one word to sum up those five characteristics, we would say these false prophets were abusive. They enslaved them, they insulted them, they exploited them, they treated them with utter contempt. And yet, strangely, strangely, the Corinthians not only accepted this kind of abusive leadership, but they preferred that kind of authoritarian leadership to Paul's. Verse 19, you gladly put up with fools, since you are so wise. Verse 21, to my shame, I admit that we were too weak for you. There was something of the masochist in the heart of these Corinthians. They loved being enslaved, exploited, taken advantage of by these charismatic figures who oozed a superior attitude and had an air of authority about them. And of course that doesn't surprise us because even today there are still people who are drawn to that kind of authoritarian leadership 
to leaders with big personalities who make big demands and expect great sacrifices from the vulnerable people that attach themselves to them. One thinks of Jim Jones, who persuaded in 1978 109 of his followers to drink uh, poison communion wine at Jamestown in South America. I have trouble getting people to drink ordinary communion wine (laughs) on a weekly basis. But there's something in some people that allows themselves to be abused and manipulated by authoritarian figures. But it's even more dangerous than abusive leadership. These false apostles not only took advantage, but they propagated poison. Right at the top of the list there in verse 20 is, they enslaved them. Now Paul uses that word only in one other place in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4, where he speaks of the Judaizers. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. The same word. And it seems that these super apostles not only made extravagant claims about their ministry, but also denied the very gospel that Paul had taught by adding law to grace. Now notice how Paul stresses his Jewishness there in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Linguistically, culturally, and religiously, Paul was a Jew. But he was a New Testament Jew. Just as Abraham was an Old Testament Christian who believed that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone. And so he adopts the posture of a fool to warn and wake up the Corinthians to the very real danger they were in. He resorts to drastic um, tactics because the very gospel was at stake in Corinth. The necessity of his boasting. The reluctance in his boasting, the necessity of his boasting, then the content of his boasting. What did Paul actually boast about? Well, in verses 23 to 29, we have this great list uh, where Paul catalogues his achievements. And that list, I suppose, can be grouped into four. First of all, he boasts about the effort he made. Look at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder. Paul was the kind of man who made you tired looking at him. He was industrious, productive, hardworking. In Acts 19 and 20, we get an insight into his ministry. While he was in Ephesus, he preached every Sabbath in the synagogue. Presumably, he preached every church Uh, Every Sunday in the church, he lectured every day in the hall of Tyrannus. He visited publicly from house to house. He planted other churches. And added to that, he labored in tent making to support himself in the work. No one could question his commitment to the work. So he boasts of the effort he uh, made. Secondly, he boasts of the persecutions he experienced in verses uh, 23-23. to 25, he says, I have worked harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. 
Um, now remember, Paul is in Ephesus when he wrote 2 Corinthians. So that's up to and including Acts 20 verse 2. Okay, so this is, what he, what he lists here is all pre-Acts 20. So the things that he mentions here largely are not mentioned in the, the book of Acts. He speaks of being in prison. One early church uh, father estimated that Paul was in prison seven times. Five times he received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. The Mosaic law forbid more than 40 lashes, so they stopped at 39. 26 were administered to the back and 13 to the chest. It wasn't unknown or uncommon for somebody to die under such a beating. Paul received that five times. That's 195 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. That's the Roman equivalent of the Jewish lashing. Theory should never have received that because he was a Roman citizen, which uh, explains the alarm of the magistrates in Philippi when they found out that information. Once he was stoned, that's in Lystra in Acts 14, where you'll remember he was dragged outside the city and left for dead. Three times he was shipwrecked pre-Acts 20. Three times he was shipwrecked and spent a night and a day bobbing about in the open sea. Now, when you put that all together, that's 12, 12 near-death experiences before Acts 20. Calvin calls these persecutions his first apprenticeship because there was more, much, much more to come. Calvin says his body became a living monument to his suffering. So he boasts. He boasts of the effort he made, the persecutions he experienced, the hardships he faced, verses 26 uh, to 27. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own uh, countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger in the country, in danger um, at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored uh, and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Here, Paul lists his hardships he faced, the hardships he faced as an itinerant preacher. He was constantly on the move, crossing into new territories and establishing new frontiers. In the book of Acts, where, in the book of Acts alone, it has been estimated that he covered 5,580 miles. On these journeys, there were rivers to cross and seas to sail. There was the constant threat that faced every traveler in those days, uh, bandits. He faced opposition from Jews and Gentiles. He knew what it was to go without sleep, to go without food, to go without clothes. He knew what it was to be criticized, ostracized, scandalized by false brothers. His life was a life of constant hardship, always on the move, always on the run, always under pressure. It was a life of hardship and difficulty. I've lived my life, he would say, on a knife's edge. I've put my life again and again on the line. Paul's boasting. He boasts of the efforts he made, persecutions he experienced, the hardships he faced, and then lastly, the uh, burdens he carried in verses 28 and 29. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? The phrase besides everything else, the ESV translates 
as apart from other things. It's a phrase that indicates there was a lot more that he could say that he hasn't mentioned. Christostonum in the early church believed that Paul only listed half of the things that he suffered in an external sense. But here in verses 28 and 29, he goes on to speak about internal pressures, emotional pressures, pastoral pressures. And of course, this was the greatest burden of all. He felt keenly the church's weakness. When someone was weak, he was weak. His heart was tender. He felt the pain of others. Remember somebody visiting a senior minister, visiting Bible college on one occasion, and somebody asked him, what are the essential qualifications for pastoral work? And he says, oh, you need the mind of a scholar, you need the heart of a lion, and you need the um, hind of a rhinoceros. Now, I'm not sure he was right. You see, sympathy expresses sorrow. Empathy feels sorrow. We ought to be able to feel the pain that others feel. The story of the little girl who was out playing and her mother became worried about her because she was late home. And uh, when she came home, the mother was relieved. There was a mixture of Uh, emotions, uh, relief, and anger. And she says, what kept you? And she says, well, my friend fell off her bike. She cut her knee. She broke her doll, and the chain came off. And the mother says, well, well, how did that keep you late? And she says, well, I just had to sit by the side of the road and help her cry, help her cry. Well, that was Paul. He was really a big softy at heart. He felt others' pain. He knew what it was to help others cry. His daring, daring use of the feminine when he describes his work in Thessalonica, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children. Then at the end of verse 29, he says, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. When a professing Christian fell into sin, It had a profound, consuming effect upon him. He was indignant, grieved, perplexed, saddened, wounded, all these emotions burning in his heart. He was no dispassionate, disinterested doctor, sorry for the doctor's present, who could switch off at five o'clock and forget about the cases that he had encountered during the day. He felt keenly the pastoral problems of those that he loved and was concerned about. Indeed, he says in verse 26, I face the pressure daily of my concern for all the churches. And of course, that was something that in Greek philosophy was disdained. You know, Stoic philosophers taught that to um, feel pain or to, in yourself or others, was a, was a mark of weakness. You know, the story's told of the a stoic student who was out playing with a fox cub and he notices two of his um, professors coming towards him and he didn't want to appear effeminate in the presence of his um, teachers and so he he took the fox cub and he put it under his tunic and as he spoke with the um, his tutors the the fox cub began to gnaw at his stomach and eat through his flesh but he didn't flinch he didn't move he stood there stoically and that was held up as a, as a great example of enduring pain and not feeling one's pain or the pain of others. To feel pain was an indication of weakness. 
Paul says he felt pain. He boasts of his weakness. So here, Paul boasts of the efforts he made, the persecutions he experienced, the hardships he faced, the burdens he carried, the reluctance in his boasting, the necessity of his boasting, the content of his boasting. The fourth thing I want you to notice is the irony with his boasting. Now, we may still have a problem. You can see the reason why Paul boasted in the way that he did, but surely two wrongs don't make a right. Now, of course, that's, that's true. But we've got to understand that Paul is not boasting in the usual way. These verses are full of irony. Now, I'm told that British people get irony, but Americans don't. Well, irony is, is, is described by G.K. Chesterton as standing truth on its head to gain attention. Standing truth on its head to gain attention. And that's what Paul does here. He stands boasting on his head. The key verse to the whole passage is verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things, listen, that show my weakness. You see, if Paul was boasting in the normal way, you might expect him to say something that Don Carson suggests. I have established more churches. I've preached the gospel in more lands to more ethnic groups. I have traveled more miles. I've won more converts. I have written more books. I have walked with the Lord more fervently, seen more visions. I've uh, commanded the greatest crowds and performed the most spectacular of miracles. But he doesn't. He could have, because all those things were true. But instead, he boasts of his weakness. Instead, he speaks of his suffering, his persecution, his loss, his shame, and his defeats. And even when you come into chapter 12, the real boast is not the surpassing great revelations when he was caught up to the third heaven. The real boast is his thorn in the flesh. The surpassing great revelations are simply the back cloth on which he sets the thorn in the flesh, the black velvet on which the diamond is set so it sparkles more clearly. He is being ironic. He is turning boasting on its head. In fact, it may be that he's parroting the eulogies of the ancient Roman world. For instance, Caesar Augustus penned his own eulogy in his own honor, listing his own accomplishments. And it was inscribed in many monuments uh, and very, in various places uh, throughout the Roman Empire, even before he died. And that eulogy is very reminiscent of what Paul says here. Once I did this, uh, uh, three times I did this, and five times I did the other. And Paul takes that eulogy, which would have been familiar to all the citizens of Rome, and he turns it on his head, and he says, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one, three times I was beaten, once I was stoned. And in contrast to Caesar, Paul, who boasts of accomplishment after accomplishment after accomplishment, Paul's eulogy speaks of weakness after weakness after weakness. That's the whole point of the passage. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. If you don't see the irony in the passage, you've missed the whole point of the passage. If you don't get that, then Paul is simply boasting in a shameless and uh, unspiritual way. This is a carefully constructed catalogue calculated to turn the whole Greek and Roman attitude to boasting on its head and to burst the overinflated egos of these super apostles. 
They boasted of their oratory, their miracles, their powers, their knowledge, their accomplishment, their looks. Paul boasted of his beatings, his stonings, and his shipwreck. The reluctance in his boasting, the necessity of his boasting, the content of the boasting, the irony of his boasting, the experience that shaped his boasting. Now we're getting there. This is the coming to the punchline, okay? Why does Paul boast of his weakness? What is he doing? What's this all about? Well, look at verse 31. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. Now, Paul, in using that formula, indicates that he is about to introduce something of great significance, something of great importance, something that's seriously noteworthy. But what follows in verses 32 and 33 takes most commentators by surprise because it actually seems a wee bit ordinary a wee bit mundane, a bit pedestrian. Uh, Look at verse 32. Now, he's introduced this with this great introduction. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. How was all that about Why does Paul introduce a bit of what seems to be trivial personal history at this point in the narrative? Surely if he wanted to make a point about uh, about suffering, he uh, could have spoken about his stoning in Lystra or his imprisonment in Philippi. After having our anticipation lifted with this great introduction, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows I am not boasting and knows I'm not lying, we're frankly left a bit disappointed when we read about his escape from Damascus in a fish hamper. That's until you understand what he's doing. Paul is referring back to an incident that happened right at the outset of his ministry. You remember he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, breathing out murderous threats against them. But on the road, Christ arrested him and led him like a lamb into the city of Damascus. After Ananias came to him, Paul began to preach, and the Jews, with the help of the Arab governor, conspired to kill him. The gates of the city were closed and closely watched by both the Jews and the governor's troops. But at night, Paul was lowered from a window, hidden in what is indicated elsewhere in Scripture as a fish basket, basket used to carry fish, back and forth to market, um, and, uh, and he escapes. Now, to Paul, that humiliating incident was highly significant and served as an illustration for what his life and ministry would be. Indeed, the Lord had said to Ananias before he met Saul, I will show him how much he must suffer in my name And commentators believe that it was through the fish basket that that revelation came. Now, do you get the picture? Here is Paul on the road to Damascus, a proud, arrogant Pharisee, breathing out murderous threats against the people of God, um, 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 aggressively opposed to the gospel. 
And after a divine encounter with Jesus, he leaves utterly transformed and committed to the gospel that he had labored so um, intensively to eradicate. But how does he leave? In a fish basket at night being lowered down through a window. There was no earthquake. There was no thunderstorm. There was no angelic intervention. He was stuffed into a fish basket, which would have been cramped, and lowered down through a window in the middle of the night. And that incident was a revelation to him of, a, of his suffering, the suffering that was to come, an indication of what his ministry would involve. It showed him how he would suffer for the name of Christ. And it served as a paradigm for his life and ministry that he would be constantly humiliated in the work that God had called him to. He leaves the city in weakness. D.A. Carson says, the toast of high rabbinic circles with access to the highest officials in Jerusalem and Damascus slunk out of the city in a basket. And that's an indication of what his ministry of the gospel would be and how it would be fulfilled in weakness, in weakness, in weakness. And that is always God's way. He chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chooses the lowly things, the things that are not, the despised things of the world to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. You think of Moses. I am not eloquent neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant. I am slow of speech, he says, and of a slow tongue. You think of Gideon hiding in a wine press. You think of David, so insignificant. And his father's thinking that his father didn't even think it worthwhile to bring him in from the fields to meet Samuel. Think of Elijah. Think of Jeremiah. Think of the 12 disciples. Would you have chosen them? If you were looking for candidates to turn this world upside down and lay a foundation for the church for generations to come, would you have chosen those 12 men? Well, you see, the, the fact of the matter is that, that God's choice is not only unconditional, it's often unconventional. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And those who are naturally able and gifted, like the Apostle Paul, are humbled and reduced to fleeing from Damascus in a fish basket so that they understand that God's way of working is through weakness. That's the great lesson that Paul discovered. It's fish basket theology. We are called to a ministry that advances through and in spite of our weaknesses. As Hudson Taylor said, God is sufficient for God's work. God chose me because I was weak enough. And in our celebrity-obsessed culture that admires the arrogant, the strong, the outrageous, the confident, the self-assured, the big personality, that's a lesson we need to rediscover as God's workers in our world in 2017. He delights, delights to take a tinker from Bedford and make him into an author, a cobbler from Leicester, and make him into a Bible translator. 
a shoe salesman from Chicago and make him into an evangelist, a crofter from Scotland and make him into a professor of theology. Weakness, weakness, weakness. That's what this fish basket incident is all about. It was designed to teach the Apostle Paul that it's not through great power that God works, but through great weakness. So you complain and say, I'm not very significant. And God says, good. I'm not uh, very able. And God says, good. I'm too reserved for this work. And God says, good. I'm not articulate enough for this work. And God says, good. My gifts are too meager. My influence is too small. My capacity is too limited. And God says, good, good, good. You're exactly the person that I want, says God, because my work is advanced through weakness. This fish basket experience led a foundation for Paul's life and taught him that the work that God had called him to was a work of humiliation, weakness, and frailty. And there's maybe somebody here that's going through a crisis in their ministry where they feel rejected and humiliated, could it be that God's teaching you a little bit of fish basket theology? And he's just reminding you that his work is advanced through weakness. The reluctance in his boasting, the necessity of his boasting, the content of his boasting, the irony in his boasting, the experience that shaped his boasting, and the last thing I want you to notice is the conviction that gave rise to his boasting. Paul boasts of his weaknesses because he is convinced that that is God's way to advance God's work. But how that happens and how that comes about is revealed to us in chapter 12. After boasting about the thorn in the flesh, a weakness, he not only reminds them of the sufficiency of God's grace, my grace is sufficient uh, for, for you, that great and wonderfully comprehensive promise that reminds us that God will never put a burden on our backs that he doesn't give us the strength to carry but he also reminds them that his power is made perfect in weakness that it's in the extremity of our weakness that his power is most manifested and verse 9 of chapter 12 is not simply a conclusion to the thorn in the flesh narrative it's a conclusion to the whole section on boasting It is this conviction that gives rise to Paul's boasting. Look at it carefully, verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, that's the link, all the more gladly about my weaknesses that Christ's power may rest on me. That it's through our weakness that Christ's power is manifested. This was the conviction that led him to write in the way that he did. That it's in my weakness, my frailty, my shortcomings that Christ's power operates. And that shouldn't surprise us because that is the gospel. The power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes comes through a weak, bleeding, dying saviour who at the height of his agony cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But in that humiliation and weakness, a great multitude are redeemed that no man can number. His power is made perfect in weakness. And the fact of the matter is that it's not that none are too weak to be of any service to him, but many are too strong to be used by him. This is what Jeffrey B. Wilson calls in his little commentary, the grace principle of effective service. That it's in our weakness, the power of God is most apparent. You see that phrase there in in verse 9, that Christ's power might rest on me. Notice that, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power might rest on me. Literally, might tempt me. Now that's the only place that that phrase appears in the New Testament and indeed the Septuagint. And most commentators see it as an allusion, a reference to the tabernacle. That just as God dwelt in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, so in our weakness his power comes to dwell in us. I don't think that's an adequate understanding of what Paul means. We are not the tent. It's, It's the power of Christ that is the tent. That his his power comes to tent us. The Amplified Bible puts it like this. That the power of Christ may pitch a tent over me. Isn't that a wonderful picture? That the, the power of Christ pitches a tent over me. I'm covered by his power. In our weakness, when any work of any spiritual significance is accomplished, what do people see? They don't see us because we're weak and frail and hopeless and helpless. But they see him. And they see his power tending us. And the help that he provides for us. And we don't want them to see us. We want them to see him. And it's when we are weak, then we are strong. Because they look at us and they see the power of Christ tending us. And nothing else. And that's why Paul, sorry, that's why God places the gospel treasure in weak earthen vessels, as he says back in 2 Corinthians 4, to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. And that's why Paul boasts in the way that he does, because he has the conviction that the dynamic power of God is unleashed and most evident. In weakness, to quote Wilson again, the self-sufficient must ever remain strangers to the power, which is manifested only in conscious weakness. To reduce it to a mathematical formula, my weakness, his power equals his work. That's the principle. That was Paul's conviction. There's a a wonderful line in the Victorian preacher's um, A.B. Simpson's hymn, The Everlasting Arms. It reads like this. Underneath us, oh, how easy, we have not to mount on high, but to sink into his fullness and in trustful weakness lie. And we find our humbling failures save us from the strength that harms. We may fail, but Beneath us are the everlasting arms. We find in our humbling failures 
salvation from the strength that harms. It is when we are reduced to nothing that his power becomes everything. That was the conviction that gave rise to Paul's boasting, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. So here we stand at another conference, keenly, keenly, feeling our inadequacies, our weakness, our inability, our sinfulness, knowing that in and of ourselves we can't even create an anxious thought. And Paul would say to us, excellent, excellent, because his work is advanced by his power through our weakness. That was the epiphany that I had when I um, had that crisis of conscience in ministry that God uses hands covered with peanut butter and jelly. And so we say with Paul in that wonderful paradoxical conclusion there in verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong.